1: Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director here with Mara Levinsky, Executive Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, the moment has arrived. Bo and Hope are officially heading back to Days of Our Lives next week, and we have the exclusive preview with head writer Ron Carlovati and our new issue. So picking up the next chapter of their arc was always in the plans after the Peacock spinoff Beyond Salem Chapter 2 aired. But while the team was waiting for news about a Chapter 3, the news that Days itself was moving to Peacock was released, and the show quickly pivoted to incorporate the tale into the mothership, as it's now called. So to that end, uh, they contacted Christian Alfonso and Peter Recel about returning, obviously, as Bowen and Hope, plus Steve Burton as Harris, Miranda Wilson as Megan, Victoria Conifle as Ciara, Christopher Sean as Paul, and colton little as andrew donovan so we're also going to see robert scott wilson who's currently playing alex reprise the role of ben for the story which is going to play out for a while as i understand it and this whole story is going to tie into what's happening with kayla marlena and kate so there will be a lot of fan favorites included here and ron says it feels like an old school day story so trust and believe i will be tuning in for every moment
0: same here. Uh,
1: another imminent return
0: we're reporting in the new issue is that of Torsten K, whose Ridge has been absent from b for a bit in the wake of the character's two love interests, Brooke and Taylor, both giving him the heave ho. We will see him again on March 15th. And other big news that came out of b this week is that the character of Ridge Forrester Jr., formerly known as RJ, the only shared offspring of Brook and Ridge, will be heading back to Los Angeles in the form of soap newcomer Joshua Hoffman. That is very exciting to me because we haven't seen that character since 2018. But of course, you know, his bloodline makes him as connected as you can be to most of the key players on the canvas. Uh, I feel like he's a character who's basically a blank slate because he was a teenager when we last saw him. So who knows how his personality may have shifted over the last half decade.
1: Oh yeah, I am super excited about this casting, especially because so much has gone on with his family since he was last there. I mean, I feel like we're always like, where's RJ or now Ridge Jr. Right, Right. (laughs) I think you know, he'd want to check in on them at some point. So happy to hear he's on his way home to Los Angeles. Um, Another piece of fun news comes from Hallmark. There'll be another Hannah Swenson mystery, which means days alum, Allison Sweeney, who played Sammy and general hospitals, Cameron Matheson who plays drew are teaming up again for it. So they've been up in Canada filming alongside another soap alum, Barbara Niven, and I am super excited to see this new film, which is called Carrot Cake, a Hannah Swenson mystery, and it will premiere later this year. So also in the new issue, we have an interview with General Hospital's Michael Easton, who plays Finn, but has also portrayed a few other roles in Port Charles. So you got to speak to him, which absolutely delighted me because, you know, he's not a guy that does a lot of press. But I remember when we were at Super Soap Weekend one year, he took part in a Q&A session and I found him so engaging and funny that I always wished he did more.
0: Yeah, Michael is like one of the most charming conversationalists in all of daytime, in my humble opinion. And this interview really just emerged organically out of a larger conversation that we were having about his experience on GH. Obviously, he's had a unique run because he has played a multitude of characters in the Port Charles universe. And I really enjoyed uh, hearing his perspective on things that worked, things that didn't quite work. And we had some hearty chuckles over the fact that his doomed character, Silas Clay, has had more of an active life since he died, (laughs) since he was posthumously revealed to be the father of both (laughs) Nell and Willow. Uh, But if you are a Michael Easton fan, run Do Not Walk to that feature because he's so funny and so insightful. And there couldn't be a better
1: combination, in my opinion. Here, here. Well, our guest today actually knows a thing or two about Michael. It's Gregory Harrison, who plays his on-screen father, Gregory Chase, but has lived quite a successful Hollywood life out of Port Charles. So let's catch up with him and see what's going on. Hi, Gregory.
2: Hello. How you doing? How you doing? I'm good.
1: We are good, too. We are excited to talk to you today.
2: Thank you. My pleasure to be here.
1: Well, so we are going to go deep into the life of Gregory Harrison, <laughs> and we're going to start where you grew up. So, as I understand it, you grew up on Catalina Island, an island off the coast of California. So, how did yeah. your family settle there, and how would you describe what your childhood was like there?
2: Oh, boy, um, well, my my grandfather uh, came from Dublin, and uh, and he sort of worked his way across Canada. I think he was he was felling lumber up in the Yukon and eventually worked his way down into the States. And, and he came down with some kind of a strange, uh, uh joint disease and the doctors all said, you got to go to the Pacific ocean. That's where the healing waters of the Pacific will help you and the dryness and of the desert. And actually he went through Phoenix first. It didn't get any better. He went to the, to Redondo beach back in like 1905. And, and uh didn't help and they said no the healing waters are over there and they pointed across you could see catalina 26 miles across the sea and he went oh oh, okay so he went over to catalina and he'd had this this disease for like two or three years at this point it all went away and so he he lived there he lived there for the rest of his life he started the glass bottom boats and uh which was a big tour you know for the for the tourists would come over this is in about 1906, 1907. And he ran them for 30 years and, well, not even that, maybe 20 years. Um, my father was born there in 1912. And uh, my grandfather died uh, di- free diving. He ended, my grandfather ended up ho- holding the world's record for free diving, three minutes and 48 seconds. And he would feed the fish under the glass for all the tourists. And uh, he had this terrible accident, which is a whole other story. But he he died. My father then took over the boats as a young man and ran them for 55 years. And I was supposed to be the third generation of glass-bottom boat captains. And they made a movie, though. In 1965, I was 15 years old, and the movie was called The Glass-Bottom Boat. It starred Doris Day and Rod Taylor. Arthur Godfrey played my father. And uh, they shot it on my dad's boat. So I was watching them from about 10 feet away. And I watched Doris blow lines and stuff and curse and <laughs> say, ah, let's do it again. And I watched all this and I had thought up to that point I loved movies. And I thought that's some kind of magical process that mere mortals like myself couldn't possibly do. And I but I I just loved movies and television. And when I watched her do that and I watched them shoot it again and keep doing it till they got it right. And I went, oh, that's not magic. That's just like a complicated puzzle. And you just do it till you get it right. I can do that. And that was the day, I mean, literally in that moment, I said, that's what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. And that was the day I just took this hard right turn and then I wasn't ever gonna be the glass bottom boat captain. And I was 15. I knew that eventually I was going to be in Hollywood. I was going to be a working actor and I was going to spend the rest of my life doing it. It took 10 more years. I graduated high, you know, had to go through high school on the island. And I went in the army and I was a helicopter medic. And I got out and I went to Hollywood then. And I studied on the GI Bill for five years before I even got an agent or a job. So at 25, I became an actor, a working actor. And my first job was starring in a movie. So I kind of skipped through the bit part section but I just didn't work at all. You know, I studied like crazy, but I didn't get paid to act until all of a sudden I was starring in a little independent film and then it did well. And I, and I now suddenly I had an agent and I was in the union and I was only going in on movie star and TV star roles. So 10 years after I decided it, it started, you know? Yeah. So there you go. Wow.
0: That's a, a pretty, a pretty amazing. So, um, So after you, you served in the military, did you like, did you not pass go? Like you still had your heart set on becoming an actor and went directly to California. Like I, that just,
2: I, I, I went back after I got out of the army in February of 71, I, uh, I went back to Catalina. I became a doorman. I wasn't even 21 yet. I, I became a doorman checking IDs because <laughs> they didn't check mine for the job. <laughs> uh, I-, I checked people's IDs before they could go into the Chi Chi Club, which was the name of the big bar in Avalon in Catalina. <laughs> and uh, and then we weren't getting any business. So they 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 said, let's do, let's do a show or something. I said, Yeah, there's this great musical called The Fantastics. Um, we could use like the band members and a couple of the waitresses and the bartender, and we could do this show for like an hour and a half from like six to seven 30. And then, you know, cause that was our quiet time in the early evening. And, uh, so we did, so we put together this show and, uh, and, and, you know, we did it every night in the summer. And I played El Gallo, who was like, you know, this, this, this Spanish, uh, uh, troubadour kind of hero of the show and and uh, or villain sometimes. And one night, Jason Robards and and uh, Jack Lemmon and Barbara Rush, I believe, were starring in a movie because they shot movies in Catalina a lot, you know, in little coves and off the coast and in the ocean, you know, boat shots. It was like poor man's Tahiti or poor man's Mediterranean. <laughs> it was an easy trip over from the mainland for a movie company. So they're shooting this movie and I go out there to I'm singing, uh, try to remember the kind of September when grass was green. And I look and there's Jason Robarts sitting at the bar with a drink in his hand. He's just come in from work. And Jason was a big drinker back then. He got sober about a year later after a terrible accident, but he was a big drinker then. And he was drinking and I went, oh, and I and I played the whole show and I'm back in the in the uh, literally a broom closet changing out of my el gallo outfit and into my doorman clothes to run to the door to let everybody out at the end of the show and there's a knock on the door and I open it and it's Jason Robards he's really toasted by then and he goes hey I just just want to tell you, I, you you're good you could you could probably make a living doing this it's just just you know you, you, you got whatever you got that thing you know just want to let you know. And he left. (laughs) And I was just, I was gobsmacked. And, and literally the next morning I got on the boat and went across to the mainland and took a bus up to Hollywood. And I I had, I had a card in my hand because I'd been having some rooftop fling with a girl who'd come over to the Island about two weeks earlier. And she'd put her phone number on a card. She goes, if you ever come to the mainland, call me. (laughs) I said okay okay yeah sure well I still had the card but on the other side of the card it said Estelle Harmon's Actors Workshop and it was Estelle was this acting teacher in Hollywood who worked with Universal and all these studios I never called the girl but I but I called the, the, the I went to the acting workshop and I went in I the bus dropped me off on Melrose and La Brea and I went in and I I met her. I met Estelle, and I and she goes, "You, you, you, you want to like join the fundamentals class?" I said, "Well, I'd like to. I, I don't have any money. I had about fifty bucks in the bank." And I said, "But I have. But I do. You take the GI Bill because the army will pay for an educate for a college for me. Will you take that?" She goes, "Oh yeah, we take the GI Bill." All right. So I literally went around the corner and rented a little rat infested apartment, and that was like literally 24 hours after Jason Robards told me he thought I had something. And I, that was the start of four years of study with Estelle and then on to to Stella Adler and then Lee Strasberg and but all in LA. And then I did this little independent film we shot on weekends for a year and it got noted, noted by the head critic in, in the LA Times. And Universal bought it and we reshot it. That got me in the union. And now I'm starring in a like universal film. And I didn't have an agent yet. And, uh, and my, an agent called me. And then it was like the whole thing just, you, you just have, you know, all I ever focused on was just be good, get good, get good at it. And all the other good stuff, the money or the fame or the, you know, whatever, the, the adulation, you know, all that will come if you get good, but you got to be good. And so all I focused on was just get good. And I really worked like eight, you know, eight days a week getting good. And I, I had a I had a window washing route at night that I created that I would wash all the exteriors four times uh, a month and the interiors during the day once a month of all these shops up and down Melrose and La Brea. And, you know, I, I could make a, a couple hundred bucks a week doing that. That was how we lived. And uh, and I just studied, 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 and worked uh, on on getting good,
1: mm-hmm. and yeah.
2: eventually it paid off.
1: Maybe. Well, so Jason Robards had a story that he could have dined out on for years, as did this girl. <laughs> <laughs> that card changed your life, you know. <laughs>
2: Not really, but Jason, you know, later, like like twenty years later, I'm on Broadway, and Jason's getting a life achievement award, and they asked me to give it to him. So I gave Jason Robards a Life Achievement Award from the Drama Desk, uh, for Dram- dramatist Guild. And uh, and I was able to tell the story in front of the all the, the hot shots of New York Broadway life and give Jason his award.
1: Now, because so they, they knew were, the they're, story?
2: Full like circle, you know?
1: Did, did they, they know, know the story, story, and
0: that's why they asked you, or just because you were on Broadway at the yeah,
2: time? Yeah, no, they, when they 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 had heard the story, yeah. And I had seen Jason a couple of times and thanked him. And the funny thing was, I remember I was doing Trapper John a few years, you know, like 1980. So from 19, so like 15 years after it had happened, I was doing Trapper John and I saw Jason Robards on the lot one day as I was leaving the set and I screeched to a stop and got out and and ran up to him. I said, Mr. Robards, Mr. Robards, I, I can't thank you enough. You've changed my life. What, I mean... And he went, oh, um, Gregory Harrison. Yeah, I know your work. Yeah, good, great. And I, I said, no, you, you came to Catalina. And you, when you told me that you thought I could, I could make it that night at the Chi Chi Club, you changed everything. And he said, did I shoot a movie in Catalina? I said, yes, you did. He goes, I was a drinker back then. I don't remember much about that. But hey, if I got you in the business, then one good thing came out of my drinking. Oh, he was very sweet there. about it. He That's was very. So amazing.
1: That's amazing. Well, what role do you consider to be your big break?
2: Um, my biggest break, I think, was Centennial. It was a twenty-five-hour a miniseries in 1979, and I was the central role in it. The guy Levi Zandu created the town of Centennial, and it was. I was surrounded by about 150 of the greatest actors in America, and I was a complete unknown, basically. Um, I think I'd had one series that went a few episodes and that was it um and it was a i aged from 22 to 78 and uh it was it was like i was perfectly framed among all these really legitimate well-known actors and uh great story and and incredible production value and it's a it's a piece of americana i'm very proud of and that has lasted i mean there's still huge you know fan sites Mm -hmm uh, devoted to Centennial. So I think that changed, I think it gave me some credibility, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, as you know, it's when you're first starting out, you sort of define yourself. You had to be careful how you define yourself. If, if you can be, your first success kind of defines you. And, uh, and then if you ever want to go beyond that kind of definition, it's usually a battle. So for me, fortunately, my first success, which was Centennial was, uh, it defined me as like, oh, he's got, he's got some versatility and some skills. So I was allowed to pursue other, other kinds of roles throughout my career.
0: So in 1979, if I'm not mistaken, was also the same year that Trapper John began as yeah. a spin-off of MASH. And, uh, you know, as we're talking, it's striking me that there's not so like many years in between washing windows and studying and like being on the cover of magazines, you know, so when you started to accrue that kind of fame and visibility, was that exciting or did you struggle at all with what fame meant to you know you as an individual?
2: You know, I've always struggled with fame. Um, you know, there's certain perks that come along with it, of course. There's a lot of deficits, though. I, I, I'm kind of I, I I think one of the reasons why I have not uh battled to try and stay in the A division as an actor is because I'm not comfortable having people breathing down my neck um, 24/7 and I really like the way my my career has, has gone because I get you know I, I get to do what I love to do I get paid pretty darn well for it but I can also walk down the street and if people recognize me they don't get overly excited they they might say something nice, you know. Um, usually they just like elbow whoever's next to them and go. Hey, is that the guy who sold me the used car, or is that the guy on TV? I don't know. Um, but I'm in a really good slot right there that I that I find is a is a great comfort zone. Um, I've been there for 50 years now. So, you know, I just turned. I'm turning 73 in about a month and a half. So. Uh I've had I've I've been blessed, you know, with with having a, a great career that's that's allowed me to do what I dreamt of and yet have a real life, mm-hmm. a real three-dimensional life, you know, raise a family, live, live uh outside of Hollywood. I'm not really fond of I'm not really fond of the business of Hollywood or the or the uh the, the show business part of Hollywood, but I I just love acting and I love I love the creative side of what I do mm-hmm. and I, and I love that. I mean, to be, to be kind of pointed at what we're here to talk about. I mean, I, I love that I've been able to do all these different hybrid kinds of acting. Um, you know, I, I, have done tons of theater, uh, little theater around the country, Broadway musicals, uh, books on tape, radio plays. I've done 20 radio plays. I've done tons of movies and of course, thousands of hours of television and now, but I had never done a soap opera. I mean, I'd never done a daytime soap. I did Falcon Crest. So I've done soap operas and a lot of the TV movies I did for lifetime and things like that were soap operas, (laughs) but I've never never done a daytime soap and I was terrified of it. And uh, so to add that now to this kind of, a repertoire of hybrid acting milieu, you know, uh, uh, milieus uh, that that I've that I've been able to experience and try and perfect my skills at has been really satisfying, and I'm I'm thrilled now to be on General Hospital, wow. and to have to have found a comfort zone in it, which I you know I I started out very uh, terrorized by the whole <laughs> thought of learning twenty or thirty pages of dialogue, you know, and coming in and in a In a couple of hours, putting it all onto tape.
1: Well, we are going to get to poor Charles, Gregory. We're still in 1979. A lot has (laughs) happened before this, okay? 79 being a big year, you were invited to represent Team CBS on literally one of my favorite shows. Growing up, Battle of the Network Stars. Um, and one of the team members of NBC, the winning team, not to rub it in, was Randy Oakes, who was starring <laughs> on Chips at the time. So now, is this really how you met the future, Mrs. Gregory Harrison, your wife of 40-plus years? And trust, yeah. I knew that at the time that you guys were together eventually, and I was very excited.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was how I met Randy. She was uh, co-starring on on Chips. And uh, she was there for, with NBC. I was there with Trapper John, which was CBS. And uh, and back then there was only three networks, so you had the you know like a twelve-person team from each network, and you would compete in all these ridiculous kind of uh, you know make-believe <laughs> obstacle courses and <laughs> swim races and and we, we, it all happened up at Pepperdine University, which is in Malibu, right on the coast here, beautiful. And uh, and I was there with my girlfriend at the time, who I had, was an actress that I had stolen from another actor uh, when we were on location on uh, Centennial. uh, um, Very
1: soapy, see?
2: (laughs) Oh yeah, oh one of those location romances. That was before I learned that those don't work. (laughs) And and so I was there with my girlfriend. She was there with uh, her fiance, who was a member of Toto. And and uh, actually, she had postponed their announced wedding day because she wanted to do the Battle of the Network Stars. They, they paid some money if you even if you lost, you got a good chunk of money, and if you won, you got a real good chunk of money. And back then, I mean, you know, we were all kind of newish in the business, and nobody had a big bank account, and the money was good. And of course, the PR was good and all that. It was like the first reality show competition, right? It was the first one. And, uh, and so she shows up there, I, I'm there. I didn't, I wasn't looking to meet anybody, but they get, you know, you get there, you get in your trailer and all they hand you is spandex, right, everybody had to wear spandex. <laughs> and it was humiliating for me to, you know, like they give you like, like, like uh, what do you, I, I'm trying to think of a clean name to describe them. Anyway, they were like Speedo spandex suits for, for the men but the women had like these single layer speedo one piece suits that you might as well have been naked. And, and she looked great. And, and so there was this one competition, Howard Cosell is the, is the host of it. Just one competition where you sit above this water tank and there's a, you throw softballs at this, this little target. And if you hit it, the person falls in the water tank. And so, CBS was up first and I was the first one that they asked to come. Okay, Greg, Gregory Harrison, come on up here. And then, you know, you got to pick somebody from the other teams. And I said, yeah, that that one right there, her, that girl. I want her up there. And it was Randy. I I set her up there. She gets up there all sassy and beautiful. And I hit it three out of three, knocked her in three times. The water was very cold. which made her look even better in spandex. And, <laughs> this is a PG rated show probably. Um, um, and and so then at the end of the three, I went up, I climbed up the steps and as she's getting out, you know, huffing and puffing, I picked her up and carried her back and put her on the bench with her team and walked over and sat down. And then it was eventually it was it was the NBC team. She picked me, puts me up. There knocks me in three times out of three and then she goes up the steps and as i'm climbing out picks me up and carries me to my bench. well that was the end of that and and uh uh, you know we, we finished the thing and yeah nbc won her team won we got second and uh about a month goes by my girlfriend has broken up with me and gone back with her original actor buddy actor boyfriend Randy has broken up with the guy from Toto. <laughs> We're at a charity, of, a charity softball game. I'm sitting on the, on the bench, I'm really morose because my girlfriend has broken up with me and I don't know, is life worth living? And I'm sort of sitting there in the dugout and everybody's warming up before the game and the crowd's starting to show up. And I hear this clop, 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 coming down this, the, the dugout steps. And then thump, some, something sits down next to me and I hear, hi, two drinks and dinner and I'm yours. And I turned and looked and it was Randy. <laughs> she had handed her key, she had seen me, she'd come with her manager. She said she handed her keys to her manager and said, take my car home, I'm going home with him. And I took her home. And that was 42 and a half years ago. I love that story so much. You got to remember this was like 1980. This was at the end of the 70s. The 70s were a different time. I was 31, she was 30 and it was like we had sown our oats and it was we were we were ready to get serious, you know? And we were looking for somebody that instead of just pure lust that there could also be some actual liking going on and I really liked her. It was like a few months after that, somebody, my 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 best buddy friend said, Yeah, it's so important. Who's your best friend? And I said, Well, besides you. And he goes, Yeah. And I said, Oh, Randy. I couldn't believe I said it. It was like Randy, this 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 girl who was sort of an aspirin for my broken heart headache had become my best friend. And I and it was, you know, it's time to get married. Yeah. And we did.
0: You have to understand. That if my this was how my parents met, if this was my parents meet cute, you would not, you would know this story before you knew my name. Like I would be telling this story from morning, noon, and I. Do your kids think it's as charming as Stephanie and I do? Well,
2: that's funny because every, you know, everything that was ever filmed is on YouTube. Mm -hmm. My kids came home from high school about twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, with these horrible looks on their faces one day and said, oh, my God, mom, dad, do you know that 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 when you guys met is on YouTube and some <laughs> kids in class were showing it to me today? You guys look like you were about to have sex. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so they they know too well. They know you could. Yeah, we 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 reeked of lust, and uh, and and you could see that we were a good match. So
1: that, that is amazing. It,
2: it disgusted my kids, but it amuses me.
1: And here well, we are, all these years later, it still tell the tale. So you were right.
2: Last night my- was my was my youngest daughter's birthday. She turned thirty two, and uh, oh. she's a model, beautiful, beautiful model. Works everywhere, all over the world. And uh, uh, she is she loves us so much and she's she's so happy with the way her life has gone. and She wouldn't trade a thing. And, you know, so so Randy and I feel, you know, even though they know stuff about us that you might not want to share with your kids. Generally, Mm -hmm. our kids forgive us for all of that. We've been (laughs) we have we have done something right and uh, and they love us.
0: Well, it wasn't just uh, Randy who was impressed by your physique back in the day, Gregory, because we cannot forget this important credit of yours in 1980, 1980- Oh, no. You played an aspiring actor who moonlighted as a stripper in the TV movie for ladies only. I want to know how similar to the famous Patrick Swayze, Chris Farley, Chip and Nails audition sketch on Saturday Night Live was the audition process for this movie.
2: There was no audition process. (laughs) I was the producer. I created the story. It was my first production with Catalina Productions. I had always decided, I mean, since I'd arrived in Hollywood nine years earlier, ten years earlier, I had decided if I ever make it, if I ever get a hit going, I'm going to create a production company. I'm going to not wait by a phone. I'm going to create jobs for myself. So when I first got to here's here's just how for ladies only was the story of an, of an actor in studying in New York who really wants to be a serious actor. And he, he he's living in poverty. And uh, one of the guys in his acting class says, you know, I'm 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 working at this club male strip club and they need waiters. And all you got to do is you got to take your shirt off, but you just wait tables and you make a lot of money. And so I like to say, oh, well, okay, you know, I'll do that. And, and then because one night sort of like an all about Eve kind of situation, somebody doesn't show up and they say, Hey, you, Johnny, get up there on the stage and do something. (laughs) And, and he's, he's got a natural flair for it. And he ends up getting famous for that but that keeps him from being a legitimate actor because nobody wants to hire a stripper um, who's on the cover of People Magazine to to do a legitimate role. That all came about because when I first got to Hollywood in 1971, I was also writing a lot of music and singing songs. I'd been writing music for years at that point in the army and prior and poetry. So I started putting my, my, my poems to music and playing at the troubadour. The troubadour was, the, you know, big club at the time. And they had these hootenanny nights. Every Monday you'd go in, you'd stand in line at about from about 3 PM. And eventually you'd get in the front door and they'd say, okay, your slot is from twelve forty-five AM to one, you know, and you'd get your 15 minutes on a stage and producers would come music producers. And they'd come and they'd listen to you, sing your songs. Everybody would be there with their guitars. And, and, uh, I'd So every Monday I'd go play at the Troubadour and play my new songs that I'd been writing. And all you're hoping for is that some music producer is gonna come up and hand you his card and say, yeah, man, I want you to come by my office. Let's talk about maybe, you know, how we can develop something. Well, I got a lot of cards. you know, I, I went in every Monday and every Monday I'd come up with, I'd get a handful of business cards. Every single one of them was from porn producers. <laughs> so apparently, they were not impressed with the music, but they went. Yeah, he's a pretty good-looking guy, and he looks, he looks like he's really needy. Um, probably, probably could use some bucks. Um, here's a here's a candidate for my next porn film. So, of course, you know, I'm I'm living on I'm, I'm washing windows and at three a.m. You know. So I'm looking at that, and I'm going, oh God, don't tempt me with that kind of crap, you know. (laughs) Because I knew if I did, I I always thought, you know, if you did, if even if you, if even if you did like a soft core thing, it would come back to haunt you, because you're going places, you know, you're going places. It's just a matter of time. But that would should be great to get a few hundred bucks in your pocket. (laughs) So I never did it, of course. But when I got that production company, I went, okay, I can't do a movie about a guy. Who does porn films and wants to be an actor? But what about a guy? There is this new phenomenon going on at Chippendale's with male strippers. So let's say he's a male stripper and he get and he gets noted for that, and then he can't get a job as an actor because of it.
1: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery, starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital.
2: And so I, I created this story. I hired a writer to sit down and write it with me. I wrote all the music for it, sang all the songs in it, and I played the, the male stripper. And uh, so I never had to audition was, my, was the point of my, of my answer. And, and it was the most successful TV movie uh, in history up to that time. And the second most successful poster <laughs> second only, second only to to Farrah Fawcett's red bathing suit, uh, iced, uh, you know what? Yeah, uh, iconic. Yeah, um, poster <laughs> at the time. I'm sure it's been beaten a million times over by now, but at the time, that was, you know, love it. So. That's um, amazing. That, that was my first production. It was a big hit and it allowed me to make a whole lot more, to produce a whole lot more other movies. I love it.
1: Well, I was going to say, in keeping with the shirt off theme, your first sort of brush with the soap genre came with the 1986 miniseries <laughs> Fresno, which was a spoof of the glitzy family dynasty, primetime soaps of the era. So you start alongside actors like Carol Burnett, Dabney Coleman, Terry Garr, and your character was Torch, whose shtick was that he pretty much never wore a shirt. So what do you remember about how that was pitched to you and was it a fun project to film?
2: It was so much fun. And yeah, Torch was a hilarious <laughs> character. I always had a white shirt, long sleeve white shirt draped over my shoulder. where a pair of Levi's and boots, white shirt draped over my shoulder. And I actually had scenes with Carol or with, with Terry or with, with Chuck, Chuck Groden, um, where I would say, excuse me. And I'd take my shirt and hang it up and grab another shirt and throw that <laughs> over my shoulder. <laughs> and it was like that, that was me changing my, my clothes. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, it was probably the funniest script I'd ever read. It was, it was five nights, 10 hours. And, uh, and everybody, I mean, all some, there were some really classic people in that. Um, Bill Paxton was in it. Michael Richards from Seinfeld, uh, uh, you know, of course, Terry and, and Carol and, and Chuck Roden and, and uh, Dabney Coleman. There's just so many amazing comedi- comics and comedians that that uh, I got to work with. And, because you know, I played this a straight character. Um, my, my biggest challenge on the show was, first, don't let my stomach hang out. And second, don't laugh, you know, because it was so hard to work with all those people and not just constantly be, you know. Busting character, (laughs) but it was really fun, and and uh, again, you know, one of those projects where I got to work with some of the icons of the industry that ten years earlier I'd only been dreaming about.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. So then, as you mentioned, you did do a a bona fide primetime soap opera when you appeared on Falcon Crest as Michael Sharp, and you know that there was an e at the end of the name Sharp because that just makes it soaper. Um, Michael Sharp, who was uh, a rival to David Selby's Richard on the business front. So right. what was it like going from spoof to actually really having to play it straight melodrama?
2: <laughs> well, it was such an outrageous character. It was, it was like my first really severe bad guy, but he had to be a charming bad guy. You know, he had to have something about him. And, and actually, you know, that ended up like that was the first time that it ended up creating a niche that, has uh, has sort of been available to me ever since so we realized uh, and I think the industry realized oh he can he can play uh, bad guys who can still be charming or good guys who have a dark side and it's like they suddenly I started being offered more complex uh, grayish characters you know shades of gray kind of characters not not one-dimensional good guys like you know trapper John, that was still the era when, in a medical show, the only people with problems were the ones who came in each week with the disease of the week, you know? It was like we we were godlike characters who could just fix everything. Um, St. Elsewhere is kind of the big hit medical show that followed us on Trapper John, where the doctors and nurses had their own foibles, you know, their own their own dramatic uh, crises going on. Um, so for me, it was that was... It was interesting playing Michael Sharp to to be able to try to find shades of gray that made him interesting, appealing, and yet repulsive at the same time.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, another notable primetime drama you were part of for a few years after that was Sisters, which is one of our favorites, where you played a love interest for Seal Awards' Teddy. So what stands out to you about that job?
2: The most important thing I ever did in my career was... In Sisters, my character killed off George Clooney. <laughs> Claim to fame. Which freed him to do ER. So, George owes me, I've never gotten none roses. I've never gotten any thanks.
0: You were the Jason Robards in the situation.
2: A, yeah, exactly. I freed George to go become a huge star. Sela <laughs> Ward. Yeah, Sela Ward was with George, and then I killed him off and I took Sela.
0: As it happens. <laughs> yeah, it does happen that way um, now all right it, you've also throughout all of this you know been working in motion pictures as well and there's one credit I need to know about 1998 airbud to golden receiver
2: now you uh on general Huff, all the movies I've done that, <laughs> you have to okay
0: yes I must now um <clears throat> On um, General Hospital, you work with Jophiel Love, who plays Violet. So we know you work with children. Airbud 2 Golden Receiver, you presumably worked with animals. So where do you fall when it comes to the you know showbiz added that you shouldn't work with children or animals?
2: Well, much of my career has been working with children and animals. <laughs> um, so, uh, no, I'm not a believer in that. I, I think uh, children and animals, I mean, they will steal every scene they're in. But uh, if you're confident and you you know and you you you're not uh, afraid of sharing the attention, um, then they're wonderful to work with, mm-hmm. and and you know I mean acting is a is a kid's game you know it's it's just basically we're just doing what kids you know we're being paid to do what kids do naturally which is pretend you know and act out and 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 make believe. So, uh I love working with kids. They bring that out in me mm-hmm. and and it was interesting working with uh on 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 uh, Airbud because they had seven dogs that all looked alike, basically, but each one each one had its own skill. So you had like one that was the close up dog you know <laughs> had, the, had the best face up close and then and then you had the dogs who you know a dog who would who could run at full speed. A one dog who could catch the football in his teeth and, uh, uh, you know, and was brilliant at that. So they would, but they also had to have, there was this one scene where I played the vet, you know, a veteran veterinarian. There was a scene where Air Bud is in the middle of the road and a car is coming down the road at Air Bud and he's looking at it. And it looks like because they're shooting it with a long lens from over here. So it looks like the car is about to hit him. And then I come running through and grab him just before the car comes through and pick him up and and rush him out of the way. So they had to find a dog that looked just right, but also was stupid enough to sit there and let a car drive straight at him without moving. <laughs> so that was one of the seven dogs.
1: <laughs> it's like. A dopey one, yeah. yeah. That's
0: that. That dog has an amazing special skills section on his or her resume.
2: How, how they cast that, I don't know. How How do you test for that? That's so funny.
1: That is. <laughs> uh, now I don't know the timeline exactly, but at some point, as you mentioned, you moved your family to Oregon. So what made you decide to leave Los Angeles?
2: Well, like I said earlier, you know, I'm not a big fan of Hollywood and of the Hollywood showbiz kind of ambiance and uh, and environment. yeah. Um, so I just, I, I didn't want to raise my kids, in and in, I have four kids, three daughters and a son. I didn't want to raise them uh, in an environment where they would be obligated to follow in my footsteps, which kind of happens a lot here. You know, kids grow up expected to take up, uh, you know, what their parents did. And I didn't want them to have that obligation. So... And I grew up in a little town in Avalon, you know, and my wife grew up in a tiny little town in Iowa on a farm on a dairy farm. So we both understood small town dynamics and kind of appreciated them. And we both wanted to have a hand in how they were raised and in the school system. And so my wife wanted to live in like Aspen or somewhere, you know, and I wanted to live in Fiji because I'm a surfer. (laughs) And uh, so we compromised We the coast of Oregon. Um, We had 55 acres and a barn and horses and, uh, you know, bought a mountaintop and built a house up on top of it. Right. Overlooking the ocean um, at the mouth of the Rogue River in in Southern Oregon. And I could surf every day. And uh, the only thing hard about it it was beautiful in every way. But it was three hours from the nearest Walmart, uh, you know, or any kind of, you know, uh, Fred Meyer up there. And and uh, it was really remote, um, but it was a tiny little town of about 3,000 people, and uh, I bought the local movie theater, and uh, so we I, I was able to pick what movies would show in town, and and if you got a if you got on the honor roll, you got a free ticket to the movie, and it was like <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: small town America, you know, and I just I just loved it. and It was a great place to raise my kids. They loved growing up there, and they were once we, you know, I mean, at first they, they knew who I was and then and the, the town was, you know, made a big deal out of, oh, look who's living here now. But after a while they got it's bored. It's the
0: vet from Airbud 2, Golden yeah, Receiver.
2: <laughs> but they got bored with that and it it was, it ended up being just a great, a great way for my kids to grow up. And, and uh, of course now uh, two of them are in the business and uh, so it didn't prevent that, but they didn't, try to get in the business until they were 18, because there was just no access to it. Although I did drag them with me whenever I'd go to New York and do a Broadway musical for nine months or a year, they, they'd move there and we'd live, you know, in in Jersey, just across the Lincoln Tunnel and put them in good school systems and stuff. So, but they'd always go back to Oregon. So we always had that as the base until they graduated from high school. And then it was like, oh, I don't want to leave here with just my wife and I in this big old house, you know, 10, 10 hours from of traveling to get to LA to a meeting. Of course, that was before that was, we, we left there about 2007, 2008, no, maybe less, maybe later, uh, 2012. And, um, it was kind of before virtual meetings and all that could happen and virtual auditioning and all these things that are now, you know, taken for granted.
0: Right.
2: But I, but I really loved raising my kids there and they they have great memories of it.
0: All right. Well, as we're veering closer and closer to poor Charles, you um you you spent some time on One Tree Hill, which was like kind of a, a the next generation of mm-hmm. prime time serials. And Stephanie and I both know people who are so addicted to that show to this day. And so, hey. oh, you are as well. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we know people. We have yeah. friends of friends of friends. Fine, it's tough. Um, but uh, it, I'm curious if you feel like, do you get recognized for that a lot? And did you feel like that kind of introduced you to another generation of fans?
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that's a sort of a touchstone for a certain generation that that know me from that. Um, prior to that, there was these three movies called Au Pair, Au Pair One, Au Pair Two, Au Pair Three, that we did from like 1999 until 2007. Um, that another generation of kids grew up loving—I mean, really loving. That's why they made three of them, um, and we shot them all over the world. That so that sort of there's that generation that recognizes me from that, and then then the One Tree Hill generation, and, uh, and all during that time, I you know I've been doing television movies and think people recognize me, but they don't always know from what. But the One Tree Hill crowd were you know were were really avid fans of that show, so they they always want to know, you know, what was Austin Nichols like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And now there's been some 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 uh, issues that have been dealt with in the press about about uh, uh, the producers and the sexism and all these things. And it's like I wasn't really aware of all that. I was going down for you know to shoot for three days every two weeks. And I uh, wasn't really aware of all of it, but I loved being in Wilmington, North Carolina. And I kept a surfboard down there. So I, when I was there, I could uh, I could jump in the water. And, and uh, you know, it was one of those really interesting shows. There's a lot of really, really good actors on it. Um, but I've had several of those things. I mean, I'm, I'm known to different generations for different reasons.
1: Right. That's pretty amazing, though. Yeah, I think that's,
0: like, really... You know, and, and, uh, like I think that's what actors dream of at one point in their career, and you've achieved that.
2: Absolutely, no. I, I, I mean, I sort of said that. I don't want to dwell on it, but I, I am just so grateful to have had the career that I've had. You know, and I, I, I keep kind of being able to reinvent myself and and stay, stay, uh, uh, you know, some somehow busy and and. And needed in the business to, to play certain things. I mean, right now I'm, I, I just Monday night I was on 911 because I'm the, the the father of Jennifer Love Hewitt and 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 uh, her her brother on the show and and you know so it's like and I'm of course I've been doing all these Hallmark series for years now signed sealed delivered I I play the father of of Eric Mabius. and you know I just I've been lucky I just keep working. Mm-hmm. I'm going to knock some wood while I Yeah, right?
1: Well, let's dive into where you've been hanging your professional hat for the last few years, which is General Hospital, where you play the role of Gregory Chase, father to Michael Easton's Finn, and Josh, Robert's Chase. So how did the role come your way?
2: You know, this particular time, uh, the first job offered to me after the pandemic, the first, I think the first venue that figured out a protocol, how to shoot anything um, after the pandemic hit was soaps. And and because they're kind of controllable, you know, usually a single sound stage and little storyline bubbles with casts that 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 don't overlap a lot. And so it was sort of manageable. So the first job that came in, uh, offer that came in was my agent called and said, General Hospital wants to know if you want to do an ARC. Now I have to preface this by saying that for 55 years, I have been offered soaps, you know, uh, Susan Lucci, maybe half a dozen times I was offered arcs with Susan Lucci, you know, to play the, the man of her moment of whatever that year was. And I always said, "Uh, uh-uh, no, 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 <laughs> scared me so bad. But I heard myself say, yes, tell him yes. <laughs> it was almost like an out of body experience because I was just desperate to, to go do what I love to do. And then after I hung up the phone, I went, Oh my God, what have I just said yesterday? <laughs> oh my God. I have, and, you know, why did you wait till you were 70 something to to test your brain with <laughs> or 30 pages of dialogue a night? What, what are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? I went through terror for a couple of weeks. And then I started the show. That was terrifying. My first day was with uh, Michael and Finola and uh i think that was it it was a couple a few scenes with them they were so great they were so great everybody at general hospital was so great and 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 you know and i guess i got through it i mean i i guess i you know i second guessed everything i did after I, on my drive back home it was like oh no that was horrible oh my god how could you be so horrible but it must not have been because they started, it was a 10 show arc and then it became a 20 show and then a 30 show arc and then a contract offer to do, you know, would you like to sign a three-year contract? And it was like, I guess I'm doing it right. I, I don't know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still finding my way but I guess it's working enough for them to want to keep me on okay. and I'm having fun. I started, I mean, the terror ended after two or three weeks and I went, well, yeah, I think I can do this. And I still, don't, it's people say, how do you learn that stuff? And I, I can't really say how. I end up with a script in my hand. I got to go old school. I can't use iPads, you know. Josh is always on the set with his iPad, and and you know, just sort of doing this stuff on his iPad. You know, like, oh, okay, I got it. And it's like, no, that's not me. I need a hard copy. I print it out on my printer. I go. I I take. I highlight my lines, and I go walk the beach. I have. I'm on. A, I'm in a beach house here, so. I go walk the beach three or four miles with my script. I put earphones in so that people don't think I'm schizophrenic. You know, talking to uh, they think I'm on the phone. They think I'm talking on the phone because I'm ta- I'm doing my lines and practicing my lines. And and there are people on the beaches walking by me, but nobody looks twice because they go, oh, he's on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I I, uh, I love that I'm doing it. I'm having the best time. People are really nice. And coincidentally, at the same time, my my uh, middle daughter, Lily, has had a baby boy, Jack, who's six months old now. And and I have to drive by her. She lives in Studio City and I'm way up here, you know, an hour north of L.A. So I got to drive by her to get to the studio to shoot it down at Sunset Prospect. So either on the way down or on the way back, I pull in, I spend time with my grandson, oh. I'm my daughter, and then I continue on. So it's like I can incorporate. all. It It's really timed out well in my life. Um, I only work two or three days a week, max. And at my age, that's about right. That that works for me. You know? <laughs> and uh, I just it's I just feel blessed, you know, and grateful for it.
0: So. I feel like uh, being diligent about knowing your stuff is a real it's a really important thing for you right and then I feel like your leading lady potentially someone you've been working with a lot Nancy Legrand is known for having a little bit more of a free-spirited approach like obviously she's amazing at what she does but it seems very different from the walks on the beach that you're describing. Was that an adjustment for you, or do you get a hoot out of it, or both?
2: <laughs> no, it, it I get a, I get a, a hoot out of it. I get a big laugh out of it. Um, she's great to work with, um, but you're right. I'm not sure she's read the script when she arrives on the set. She's so smart and so quick, and she's so adept at making her choices and, and learning her lines. Um, in, in the room. I mean, I'll sit down with her and we'll get an hour or something before we have to walk upstairs and we'll run these lines. And by the end of the hour, she's got them all. We go up, she nails it. At first I was like, oh, you know, is, is this the process that you work? But it works. And once the camera's rolling, um, it's I, I just totally trust her. She's She's always there. She's always She's, she's really fun to work with, you know. I, I like to listen um, as an actor, you know, and, but in order to listen, you need somebody who's actually being real, you know, so that I'm not observing, I'm listening. It's a difference, and, and it's like an added involvement. And she, she brings that out. She's just a really good actress, you know. She's a good she, – she, she believes everything she's doing. But she doesn't. I think part of her process is not to overthink it. I like to overthink. I like to I like to walk down the beach and imagine all the different ways that any line could be said and make my choices about what feels right to me and what do I really mean and do all this acting work and then walk onto the set and add that final most important element, which is what am I getting from the other actor, which will which will sort of trigger one of those variations that I worked on. Mm-hmm. So that I'm not, I don't plan what I'm gonna do and no matter what you do in front of me, I'm gonna do it the same way. I don't wanna okay. be that actor. But I wanna, I wanna explore all my options and do all my my, my homework. It's mm-hmm. funny, I do more homework on one night of prep, on, on one day's work prep for general hospital than I did in my entire high school career. <laughs> I never did any homework on anything, and graduated. You know, and wasn't a good student, but I was fine. But I do so much work now. I love, I love the process, and I love, I love imagining the choices and, and and understanding the author's intent and understanding. I love the, the, I love, I love being able to collaborate with other people and sort of find my spot in this story. What's the instrument I'm playing in this orchestra today? And what are the notes that I need to hit in this orchestra today? And it's like, that's all very subtle, nuanced kind of stuff. And I, I enjoy breaking it down that finely, you know. I think Nancy just likes to come in and just see what happens mm-hmm. and what comes out of her. And it's always good, but it's a different process entirely. But I adore her. We have lunch together almost every time we work together. We, when they break for lunch, we'll go have lunch together. And she's a passionate human being. I really enjoy her. Mm-hmm. And, and politically, we're 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 uh, aligned enough that uh, that that's not an issue either. You know, it's like I know that some people think she's she's extreme in her passions. Um, no, I respect that. I respect her.
1: Uh, what about the guys who play your on-screen sons, Michael and Josh?
2: Well, they're they're really fun. Uh, Michael is is uh, you know once I adjust to the idea that okay I have a fifty-year-old son, uh, <laughs> which is always a shock to me. You know that yeah, legitimately, I could have a I could have a fifty-seven-year-old son probably. You know. Um, but I started late in life as a parent. So my, my oldest child is 37, but Michael is, is a great guy, great actor. I ha- we have a lot of fun together. He's, he's a very gentle soul. Mike's, Michael's a very gentle man I find. Um, but a wonderful actor, he really knows what he's doing. Um, all my work in the beginning was with Michael and, uh, he was so complimentary and, and solid that, uh, he took a lot of my fears away. And then Josh, um, I think Josh actually looks kind of like my son. I think, I think Josh looks a lot like I did at Josh's age. And, uh, and he's really adept. Um, He's too handsome. He's too handsome. He works out too much. But, But, but he's really, he's really a great, a great guy. He has a great, I've gotten to know him pretty well. He's got a great family life. And i think he he doesn't take himself too seriously which i love i love somebody that handsome and that talented does that doesn't take himself so seriously very generous very very generous very very fun relaxed i have a great time with him and uh, jojo uh is she's a phenom i'm not quite sure what to make of jojo but her whole family is like that have you gotten to have you interviewed her have you gotten to know her I've
0: spoken with her yeah
2: And her mother and father, I mean, they're incredible people. And her brothers and everything. I mean, it's just the whole family is extraordinary. Um, Sometimes a little frighteningly, uh, she is a little frighteningly uh, uh, in charge of everyone. I mean, when she shows up, it's like everyone just kind of goes, okay, JoJo's in charge. Uh, She'll tell us how it's going to go today. And, And she's very sure of herself, but... She always knows her. I mean, her parents are obviously to do what they do to be the kind of acrobats they have been. They're very disciplined. They're they're not afraid of hard work. She always knows her lines. She's always there and, and ready and fun loving too. I mean, she loves to have fun and tease and run around it's a great energy to have on that set because you know there's a lot of people who've been on the show a long time where some of us are of you know of a certain era and to have that kind of energy uh is a real breath of fresh air so i love working with her she's easy for me to play a loving grandpa to.
0: well in the the short time that we've known Gregory we know that he and Finn seem to have sort of a similar taste in women uh, there was of course, Jackie and Alexis and Finn had a little thing, and now Gregory and Alexis are having some sort of little thing. What's your take on that, Mister? I love to do my homework on my character
2: about my son and I uh, <laughs> well <laughs> i yeah I, I don't know I don't know that I have a real take on it. I will say though that one of the one of the the strangest, funnest uh uh craziest days i've ever had on a set was when was last year there was that day on the show when when we shot all these scenes where i discovered that my wife the night before all in one show the night before we got married 30 years ago you slept with my son and got pregnant by him with with my second son who i'm no longer the father of, I am the grandfather of who I thought was my second son. It was like And all the stepfather. Time, all, and, yeah. And, yes, all in one day's work. And I went home from that day, and I, I was laughing so hard. I was talking talking to Randy and saying, I have officially joined a soap
1: opera. <laughs> right. That's it's,
2: a welcome to soap. soap opera. I had a soap opera day. <laughs>
1: yep. Checked a lot of boxes that day.
2: Checked a lot of boxes. Today. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, one more that we possibly could see you fill someday. Uh, it's Nurse's Ball season in Port Charles, and theater and musical theater have obviously been a big part of your career, which yeah. begs the question if your general hospital alter ego was to perform at the Nurse's Ball, what do you think is an appropriate song for him to sing? <laughs>
2: Well, I mean, it was written for a woman, but I think Sondheim's I'm Still Here.
1: (laughs) That's a perfect one. (laughs) I love it.
0: Well, before we uh, reluctantly let you go to enjoy the rest of your day, uh, is there anything that you would like to say directly to your new fans in the GH audience?
2: Just that I'm I'm thrilled to be uh, a part of all of this now and uh, thank you for some of the responses I've been getting on social media. And uh, and I hope that I get to continue to uh, perform for you for a long time to come. Gregory, this has
1: been great and we'll talk to you soon.
2: OK, thanks again.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Gregory Harrison for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast.